You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. If you could flip over now to 1 Peter chapter 3. Tonight I'd like us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21. 1 Peter 3. Starting in verse 18, this is what the Apostle Peter writes. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. Well, I preached this passage actually before Gabe and Calvin Mendrup's baptisms. Brother Gabe, Brother Calvin, you guys probably remember this, but uh, this was a little over a year ago that we looked at verses 21 and 22, but tonight I'd like to take a little bit of a different approach to verse 21. I want us to see it from a little bit different perspective. So it's not going to be the same sermon, but of course there's going to be a little bit of overlap. But what I want to do this evening is to establish several lines of connection between what we could call Noah's baptism and Christian baptism. Now, why do I call this what Noah went through, Noah's baptism? Well, in a way, Noah and his family were baptized in the floodwaters. Remember what what we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, about Moses and the Israelites being baptized in the Red Sea as they passed through the waters. They were, in a sense, baptized. Well, I think we could say the same thing about Noah and his family. They were surrounded by water. They were covered in water. And God used that water to greatly bless them. So what happened to Moses and the Israelites in the Red Sea, I think we can say, is what happened with Noah and his family as they were on the ark with the floodwaters. But what makes me call what Noah went through a baptism is this. Peter says here that Christian baptism is the anti-type of Noah and his family riding on the ark through the flood. Now, the ESV doesn't do a very good job at bringing this out because the ESV here says baptism, which corresponds to this. But this is how the actual Greek reads in 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which is an anti-type also saves you, or also now saves you. 
It's an anti-type. So what Noah and his family experience on the ark is a type of Christian baptism. We could call it an Old Testament typical baptism. Uh, in, in, um, in Sunday school a while back, we looked at typology, type and anti-type. Type is something found in the Old Testament. It's shadowy. It was a real event, but it was pointing forward to something much greater, something in the future that would happen in the days of the gospel. And so there was a fulfillment. There was this connection between something that happened in the Old Testament and something that happens in the New Testament. They're connected, but the thing that happens in the New Testament is so much greater, so much more glorious than that which is prefigured in the Old. But there's this, there's this connection between the two things. And I think that's what Peter is trying to get at, that there is a, a strong connection between what Noah and his family went through in the ark and what we go through in the baptismal waters. So they're not the same thing, but I think Noah's baptism prefigured and pointed to Christian baptism. We say Christian baptism is the substance, the reality, the historical fulfillment in a way of Noah's baptism. And if you look at other English translations, I think kind of brings this understanding out. The NIV, for instance, says, and this water symbolizes baptism. Or another one, and that water is a picture of baptism. Or uh, the NET, and this prefigured baptism. Right? So, so the, the, whatever happened with Noah, it's prefiguring, it's picturing, it's symbolizing Christian baptism. See, there's a strong connection between these two things. So in essence, I think the flood was designed by God to point forward to Christian baptism. So tonight, I, I want us to see the connections between the flood waters of Noah and the waters of baptism so that we might have a much better understanding of Christian baptism and that also we will have a greater appreciation of the importance and blessedness of our own baptisms as well. So that's what I'd like us to look at. I'd like us to look at it under five points. Five points of connection between Noah's baptism and Christian baptism. So before we begin, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we know this is a very difficult passage. And so how we pray evermore that You would give us uh, understanding, wisdom, guidance, the Spirit of God to open up our minds and our hearts that we might understand Your Word and rejoice uh, at the blessings that are found within. Uh, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, five points of connection. Here's the first one. The subjects they are administered to or the, the, the people who were baptized. I think there's a connection here. So Peter tells us here that a few, that is eight persons or eight souls, were on the ark and experienced what we call, we could call this diluvian baptism. So there, there were eight people on the ark. Noah, Noah's wife, Noah's three sons, Ham, uh, Shem, and, and Japheth, and their three wives. So we could consider this a household baptism. All right, there's eight. They're all in the same household. But here's the thing about this household baptism or this household. It was made up of credible disciples of Yahweh. 
Now, I know Ham commits a very heinous sin after the flood against his father Noah. And I'm not quite sure what happens to Ham afterwards. I'm not sure after he died if he went to heaven or if he went to hell. I don't, I'm not sure if he ever repented or not. We're not necessarily told. But at least before the flood and during the flood, all eight of these people heeded God's warning and obeyed God's call. They built the ark, they got on the ark, and they stayed on the ark when everyone else in the world perished. So in a sense, Noah's baptism was a baptism of disciples alone. Or maybe better, it was a baptism of those who were members of the Noahic covenant. Right? God said He was going to make His covenant with Noah, and that included His wife and His sons. Those who were not disciples of Yahweh, those who weren't members of the Noahic covenant, i.e. the rest of the world, were also baptized, but their baptism killed them. Their baptism buried them in a watery grave and sent them straight to a fiery prison in hell where they await the judgment of the great day. So that was Noah's baptism. But if we think about the proper subjects of Christian baptism, Peter tells us who these people are here in this text. He says, baptism now saves you. You. Now the you here is in the plural, you all. And the you all here refers to the recipients of Peter's letter. They were the ones who were baptized. That's who he's addressing this verse to. You all, the people who received this Letter, And if we look throughout this letter, we get a very good understanding of who the you all is. In chapter 1, Peter tells us that they are those who were elect exiles of the dispersion. They are those who are foreknown by the Father, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Spirit. And there are also those who were born again to a living hope. In chapter 2, we're told that they are those who are part of the temple of God, the priesthood of God, and the people of God. And there are those whose wounds have been healed in the blood of our Savior. And in chapter 3 here, he tells us that the you all are those who had been brought to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the proper subjects of Christian baptism are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. They are members of the new covenant. They are those who have a credible profession of faith. So baptism in Noah's day and baptism in the days of the gospel are only to be administered to those who are visible saints. Not to unbelievers, not to infants, but to disciples alone. So I think that's the first connection between Noah's baptism and Christian baptism, those who actually were baptized were credible believers in the Lord. But here's the second connection. The, stu- the substance that is used and the mode in which they are administered. Now, Noah's baptism was one of water. That's clear. It was flood water. He and his family were I think, in a sense, you could say, immersed in this water. 
Now, I'm not saying they were dunked in the water or somehow they drowned for a moment in time. But think about this. Water was all around them. Wherever they looked, there was water. Water rose up below them when all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and water fell down from the sky on them when the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Brethren, this water did not sprinkle down from the sky. It poured. It drenched the world, including the ark. And you can imagine that probably big waves crashed against the ark as well and soaked Noah and his family from time to time. So the point is they were engulfed in water. And in this, in this sense, I think you could say they were immersed. Water was everywhere. What about Christian baptism? Well, Peter speaks here, I think, of water baptism. He's not speaking of Holy Spirit baptism here. He's speaking about water baptism, but he's speaking about immersion in water. That is really what the Greek word for baptism means. It means to be immersed. It means to be plunged into water. And I think to further confirm this view, Peter here even has to correct a misunderstanding of baptism by saying that its value and benefit is not in what it does outwardly to the body. You see that there in verse 21. The blessing of baptism is not in the fact that it removes or literally puts away dirt from the body. Now, dirt is not removed from your skin by sprinkling. I think it makes you even, you know, messier if you sprinkle water on yourself and you're all dirty. It is removed by having your dirty body parts covered and submerged and washed in water. Dirt is removed from your body by taking a bath. Immersion in water. So both baptisms here involved water, and I think both baptisms were by immersion in that water, being covered in water. So that's the second connection. But here's the third the symbolism they display. Now, a symbol is something that points away from itself to the substance or reality that it represents. So just think of our own church sign at the front of our property that says Grace Reformed Baptist Church. It's a sign, correct? It points away from itself to what's going on right here. Now, it would be pretty crazy if a bunch of people drove by the church sign and said, well, it says Grace Reformed Baptist Church, so that must be the church itself. And they gathered around it thinking that there would be some sort of church service there. That would be pretty silly. So it's a sign. It's pointing away from itself to something else. Well, both Noah's baptism and Christian baptism are symbols of pointing away from themselves to the spiritual reality of union with Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment to think about how union with Christ is seen in Noah's baptism. Have you ever noticed the shape of Noah's ark? Consider it. It looks like a huge floating chest. To be more specific, it looks like a huge floating coffin. A place where you put a dead man's body. If you look at the exact measurements 
It was six times longer than its width and ten times longer than its height. Now that is somewhat similar to the measurements of coffins. It's quite a bit longer than most coffins, but it's somewhat similar. I mean, really, if you looked at it, you could place a dead man's body in there, and it would fit pretty comfortably. But this coffin was not to house the dead, but it was to house the living. Living things went into the ark not to die, but to be preserved and live. So if you buried yourself in this giant wooden floating coffin, you would be saved. You would not perish. You would not die. You would be saved. And eventually you would come out of that coffin as a new creature in a new world. It's also interesting to note what God commanded Noah to completely cover the ark with. This is what God tells Noah in Genesis 6.14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, pitch is like a tar-like substance that I think was used to keep out all the water from coming into the ark. Well, here's the interesting thing about these two words, cover and pitch, in the Hebrew. The Hebrew verb cover and the Hebrew noun pitch in this verse are used later on in the Bible to refer to covering over sin and paying a ransom price in the Israelite law code. There's many references. Uh, if you want them, I can send them to you later. But they're all, they're, they're used, after they're used here, they're mainly used in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to making atonement and having your sins paid for. Cover and pitch. So I think the act of Noah and his family hiding themselves inside the ark symbolized how God makes atonement for sinners and covers over their sins and extends them forgiveness. Ultimately, I think this ark was picturing union with Jesus Christ. Being shut in the ark symbolized being buried with Christ and being covered in His blood and righteousness, which saves us from the wrath of God. And coming out of the ark symbolized being raised with Christ to new, everlasting, resurrection, life. And this isn't just what I think. In fact, this is what Nehemiah Cox who was a very important Reformed Baptist in the 1600 thinks. Hear his words in his book on covenant theology. There was a resemblance of burial in entering into it, the ark, and of a resurrection in coming out of it. In this respect, the apostle Peter makes baptism to be the antitype to the ark. Thus, the ark was an extraordinary sacrament or prefiguring of the church's redemption and salvation by the death and resurrection of Christ and of her communion, union and communion with Him that died and rose again so as to enjoy all the benefits of His death and resurrection. It's all pictured there in the ark. Going into the ark, coming out of the ark represents union with Christ because the ark is pointing forward to our Lord and Savior. But brethren, this is exactly what our Christian baptisms symbolize, but in a much clearer way. It symbolizes our union with Jesus Christ, both in His death 
and His resurrection and all the benefits of redemption which flow from being united to the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, I think, make this very clear. When the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So both baptisms, Noah and his family going in the ark and out of the ark, us going under the waters and coming out of the waters, symbolize the same thing. Fellowship and participation in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and in His life-giving resurrection. So I think that's the third point of connection, what they symbolize, saving union with our Savior. Here's the fourth, the significance that they have. I think this is probably the main point of connection between Noah's baptism and Christian baptism. You see, the waters of baptism are not just symbolic of union with Christ. They actually do something to those who go under the waters. Now, what is it that the floodwaters did for Noah and his family? Well, Peter here tells us, he tells us that they were brought safely through water. Now, the Greek literally reads that they were thoroughly or completely saved through water. I think some English translations bring that out, the King James Version, New King James Version, I think even the NIV. And I think it should read this way because that's a precise word that Peter uses, that they were saved through water. Well, Peter says a similar thing about Christian baptism. He says in verse 21, baptism now saves you. Baptism saved Noah and his family. Baptism now saves us. Well, what does this exactly mean? Is Peter here teaching baptismal regeneration? That being baptized somehow causes you to be born again and washes away all of your sins? Well, this is emphatically not what the Apostle Peter is teaching. Peter simply is teaching what our own, I think, Baptist Shorter Catechism teaches in question and answer 95. And here's what it says. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So baptism is made effectual for the elect for salvation. Baptism saves us. But as we ponder what this exactly means, let's think about the spiritual state of Noah when he was saved through water, because I think this will really help us to understand how baptism is an effectual means of salvation to us. So let's ask this question. Was Noah a converted man 
when he got on the ark and floated on the water? Was he saved? And the answer is yes. Noah was a saved man, not only before the flood, but even before he started building the ark. Genesis 6, 8-9 through 9 tell us this, But Noah found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Before Noah even stepped foot on the ark, Genesis 7-1 says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So before Noah was saved through water, he was already saved. He was already the object and recipient of God's saving grace. He already had the forgiveness of sins. He already was living a righteous and blameless life. He was already a herald of righteousness, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, preaching the gospel to his unbelieving and ungodly neighbors. Just like Enoch before him, he was already walking with God. He already was savingly united to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if all of this was true of Noah before the flood, then Noah being saved through water does not mean that Noah was regenerated or justified through the water. It means Noah, already a converted and saved man, was, we could say, sanctified through water. He was preserved. He was kept. He was blessed by God through water. And in this sense, he was completely and thoroughly saved through water. Okay, so it's important for us to understand the order of salvation, even for Old Testament saints. Noah was already Regenerated, justified, adopted, and therefore what he went through on the ark could not have made him be born again or bring about the forgiveness of his sins. Well, here's why this is important for us. Since what happened to Noah is a type of what happens to us in our baptism, what Noah experienced must be similar at some level to what we experience. There must be some resemblance, some analogy, some connection between what the floodwaters did to Noah and what the baptismal waters do to us. So I think this at least means that Peter cannot be saying that baptism somehow regenerates or justifies us in the sight of God. Because brethren, when we are baptized, we are already born again by the Spirit of God. We have already been justified by faith alone. Our sins have already been washed away. And we have already been adopted into the family of God. We've already had, we already have saving union with Jesus Christ before baptism saves us. I think this is why Peter uses the present tense form of the verb to save here. He says, baptism now saves you. Present tense. He doesn't say baptism saved you, past tense, which means being justified. 
He doesn't say here that baptism will save you, meaning to glorify you. But he says baptism saves you, meaning it continually sanctifies you. So this is how we need to think about baptism. Baptism is a means of grace used by God to continually save us from the power of our sins and to keep us clinging to Jesus Christ and to encourage us to persevere to the very end. It confirms, it seals, it formalizes in a very public way our membership in the new covenant. It reminds us of who we are in Christ. It compels us to remain committed to our Savior. And it assures us of the forgiveness that we have in His blood. But brethren, it does not unite us to Jesus Christ. Our baptisms do not save us in that way. It doesn't bring about the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't cause us to be born again. It doesn't bring about our regeneration. Only the blood of Jesus Christ applied by the Spirit of God can do something like that to our souls. That is not how baptism saves us. Baptism sanctifies us, just like it sanctified Noah and his family. So that's the fourth point of connection. Here's the fifth one, the separation that they make. Now, both these baptisms act as a dividing line between God's people and God's enemies. In a very visible and graphic way, one knew with absolute certainty who belonged to God and who didn't in Noah's baptism. Those who were on the ark were part of the righteous and holy seed who experienced the love and mercy and grace of God and who would inherit a new world. But those who were not on the ark were part of the sinful seed who fell under the wrath and judgment and condemnation of God and who are sent straight to hell. Well, in a similar way, this is how Christian baptism functions. It draws a sharp dividing line between the people of God and the enemies of God. Baptism is a visible marker of who is in the kingdom and who is not, who is saved and who is not, who is one of God's people and who is not. Brethren, baptism is a big deal because it visibly shows that you have entered into the spiritual ark of Jesus Christ and you are hiding yourself in that spiritual ark. It's a lot like how homes were marked with the blood of the Passover lamb back before the Exodus account. Right, so remember, if they marked their doorposts and lintels with the, with the blood of the Passover lamb, they were publicly acknowledging that Yahweh was their God. They were one of God's people. Uh, they were, they were distinguishing themselves from the Egyptians that they would be the ones who would be saved while all the Egyptians who did not mark their doors would come under God's condemnation and destruction. Well, that's kind of what baptism does for us. In baptism, we are publicly acknowledging that we are no longer part of this wicked, fallen, evil world that will be destroyed on the final day of judgment. But when we are baptizing, or when we are baptized, we are confessing that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that we will bow the knee to no other Lord, no other King, no other Savior except Jesus Christ, and that we will be saved on the day of judgment. So it's this dividing line 
that is drawn in the sand, that we are part of God's people, and we are no longer part of this wicked, evil world that will be condemned when Christ comes in glory. So have you gotten into the ark of Christ yet? Have you eaten of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb? If so, you need to formally and publicly acknowledge and identify yourself with Him by taking upon yourself the sign of the new covenant. You need to be baptized. You need to be marked out as a child of God. You need to officially enlist yourself in the army of the Lord. And the only way to do that, brethren, is through the waters of baptism. To say that I belong to Jesus Christ. I do not belong to the world any longer. I am His disciple. I am His subject. He is my master and He is my king. I come underneath His authority and no one else's. I think I said there are five points of connection. I'm going to add one more, a sixth one and a final one. And it's this, the assurance that these baptisms bring to those who are recipients of them. Now, both of these baptisms bring great assurance to those who are their proper subjects. For Noah and his family, they were assured of God's covenant faithfulness while they were on the ark. So they experienced God's love and mercy and grace and not His wrath. They knew that when they were on the ark, they were part of God's people and not a part of the rest of the world that was condemned. They were assured that God was for them and not against them. They saw that the pledge of God was not a hoax. When God said, build this ark and get on it and I will save you, God really meant it. God was true and faithful to His promises. And so they experienced that while they were on the ark, that God is true to His promises, that God keeps every one of them. Noah and his family passing through the floodwaters was a visible demonstration that God is faithful. Well, brethren, a similar thing occurs in our baptisms. When we are baptized, we are assured of God's love and mercy and grace toward us. You may ask how, and I think Peter answers that question when he says that baptism serves here as an appeal to God for a good conscience. I think this is how baptism continually saves us. This is the specific thing, the specific saving effect that baptism has on our souls. Right? The benefit is not in that it washes us with water, but the benefit is that it does something real to our souls. And what does it mean for baptism to serve as an appeal to God for a good conscience? Well, this is really a tough um, phrase to interpret and understand. Some people say that this means that baptism serves as a commitment or a pledge or a vow to God from a good or a sincere conscience. And in essence, in our baptisms, we're saying to God that we will stay faithful and true to Christ, our Lord and Savior, the way we are committing ourselves to Christ and consecrating ourselves to His service. But others say that it means that baptism serves as an appeal or a request, or you could probably even say a prayer to God that He would continually cleanse us of our guilt and our defilement and our sin based off the finished work of Christ. I think both of these things are true in baptism. But here I think Peter is talking about the second way. That it's, it's an appeal. It's a prayer. It's a request to God that He would continually cleanse us. You know, this word appeal comes from another word that's used many times to refer to a request or a prayer. 
Uh, it's used in the Gospels when the disciples come up to Jesus and they have certain requests to bring to Him. It's even used in Jesus' high priestly prayer when He's praying or He's, he's offering requests to God His Father. And, and in a way, baptism acts as this request or this prayer or this appeal to God for something. And that something is a good conscience. So I think Peter is telling us that baptism now saves us because it is the perfect plea to God for the assurance of our salvation. That in a sense, our baptism pleads with God that on our own, we are wicked and vile and miserable and hell-deserving sinners. Outside of Jesus Christ, we deserve nothing but God's condemnation and wrath. But because we are united to Jesus Christ, and because our baptisms picture this in such a vivid and memorable way, our baptisms scream out to God, Oh God, give us a good conscience. Oh God, continually wash me and cleanse me of all my sins. Oh God, cleanse me for the sake of Jesus Christ my Lord. Because of His death, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension on high. Oh Lord, continue to be merciful to me, a sinner. Brethren, the glorious thing is God answers this appeal every time with a resounding yes. Because baptism is rooted and grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our baptism should assure us that God is our God, that we are His people, that we are fully united to Jesus Christ, not just partially. We go in the waters the whole way. The whole old man is dead and a new one has taken its place. That we have the forgiveness of sins that God will never leave us, nor forsake us, nor condemn us, that God will always pour out His love and His mercy and His grace upon His people for Christ's sake. So these blessings are all accomplished and secured by the work of Christ. But baptism shows us these blessings. Baptism assures us that these blessings are ours. Baptism seals these blessings to our hearts and souls. And baptism even pleads these sort of things to God that He would continually be merciful to us. So great assurance is brought to the souls of those who are washed in these baptismal waters. Well, those are the six connections, the typological connections between Noah's baptism and Christian baptism. But let me just end with three uh, applications from this. The first is this. The Baptist view of baptism is biblical. I think it's confirmed in this passage. Peter's teaching on Noah's baptism and Christian baptism, I think, confirms this. In both instances, professing disciples of the Lord are immersed in water, marked out as God's people, and experience God's salvation. Now let me ask you this question. Where can you fit infants into what Peter says here? Where? I don't think you can. In fact, I have no idea how Noah's baptism is a type of Christian baptism if paedo-baptism is true. Where is the exact connection? Is it only in the use of water and that's it? If baptism saved Noah, how in the world does it save an infant? How does it serve as an appeal to God for a good, good conscience for an infant who doesn't even realize the need for a good conscience. I really don't know how anyone can read infant baptism into this text. It just does not fit. 
There were no infants on the ark. It was a household baptism, but they were all credible professors of Yahweh. There were no infants addressed in Peter's letter. We looked at that. All the people that Peter was addressing who had been baptized were those who had already been saved. And there should be no infants baptized in any of the churches of Jesus Christ. It is contrary to apostolic teaching and apostolic example. Baptism is a church ordinance reserved only for those who can be sanctified by it. But in order to be sanctified, you must first be regenerated and justified. So are infants regenerated and justified? No. Therefore, the sanctifying sacrament of baptism is not to be administered to them. They cannot be saved by baptism. They cannot be sanctified by baptism because they're not regenerated and justified yet in the sight of God. So the Baptist view of baptism is biblical, especially from this passage. Here's the second thing. Don't ever trust in your baptism to make you right with God. There are entire movements and denominations out there that believe that one is either born again or justified before God in the waters of baptism. Some teach that faith is not even necessary. Others teach that it is. But either way, they all teach that a person is saved for the very first time in the baptismal waters. Well, my brothers in Christ, this is not the teaching of the Bible. And this is not the teaching of the Apostle Peter here. Peter teaches us that water baptism saves already saved people. It does not save unsaved people. It saves people already united to Jesus Christ. Again, Noah was a saved man when he was baptized, and we are already saved people when we are baptized. So baptism indeed saves us. We must assert that. We must believe that. But it saves us just like the preaching of the Word of God saves us, just like the Lord's Supper saves us, and just like the other means of grace save us. So the most that we can say from this text is that baptism sanctifies us. It is an instrument used by God to cause us to die more and more to sin and to grow in holiness and Christlikeness. If we say any more than this, we replace the ritual for the reality. We overturn the entire teaching of the New Testament. We destroy the typological relationship between Noah's baptism and Christian baptism. And we pervert the free grace of the gospel. So friend, if you want to be made right with God, do not put your trust in the waters of baptism. They are just a sign, and only a sign, pointing away from themselves to the great reality of union with Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon says in his great hymn on baptism, No trust in water do we place, tis but an outward sign. The great reality is grace, the fountain, blood, divine. Friend, trust in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ with the empty hands of faith, covered with your sins, not covered in the waters of baptism. And Christ will save you now. Then go get baptized. But come to Christ with the empty hands of faith, covered with your sins, and be washed in His special and precious blood. That and that alone will make you right in the sight of God. Now, here's the last thing I'd like to say. Brethren, don't ever throw off your baptism as unimportant or irrelevant. Baptism saves us. That means something. 
There are too many people who belittle their baptisms. They see it as optional. They act like it's a small thing. But Peter teaches us here that it is no small thing. This one-time event of baptism does something continually in our lives. It continually saves us. It is a means of grace designed by God to keep you close to Jesus Christ. Think of it as your spiritual marriage vows to the Lord Jesus, where you are saying that Jesus belongs to you and you belong to Him. Or think of it as a weapon of warfare that can help you be preserved to the end and obtain victory over all your enemies. Brethren, do we not need all the help that we can get in all the spiritual warfare and battles that we face on a daily basis? We have a devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. We have our own sins that wage war against our souls. We have a world that wants to conform it, us into its very image. We need all the God-ordained resources we can get. And brethren, baptism is a giant spiritual bazooka that we can blow away all of our enemies with. That's how important baptism is. It is designed by God to help us ride the violent waves of this life and make it safely to the shores of glory. So I'm going to say this again. If you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved you and you still sit here unbaptized, you are only hurting yourself. Do not disobey the command of Christ. And do not miss out on a major, major blessing in your life. If you believe you're saved, come to one of us pastors. We would love to talk to you about these things. We'd love to talk to you about the state of your soul. We'd love to talk to you about baptism and church membership. Come and talk to us. Because this thing, baptism, is no little thing. It's not unimportant. It's not optional for those who belong to Jesus Christ. It is absolutely vital for the eternal welfare of your soul. So again, I encourage you, come talk to us. Peter tells us here that it saves Christians. And if you are a Christian, you should want to experience that sort of salvation. Well, I hope you learned a little more about baptism tonight than you previously knew. And I hope you can think upon your baptisms more and let them to uh, motivate you more to stay committed to Jesus Christ and to be assured more and more that you yourself belong to Christ as well. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gospel of our blessed Savior. Thank You for union with Christ. Thank You how it is pictured, not only in Christian baptism, but also in Noah's baptism. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us all to be uh, ever more grateful and thankful and humble that you have had mercy on us. Lord, use our baptisms as they are supposed to be used, as effectual means of salvation or sanctification for your people. And for those who are outside of Christ, O oh Lord, we ask that they would not perish in your wrath and in your judgment, but we pray that you, by your grace, would bring them into the spiritual ark who is the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might find safety and salvation in him. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. 
To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.